Brilliant. Thank you, Dave. Let's uh, bow our heads and pray uh, before we look at God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And we pray tonight that you would now speak to us, and that you would speak through me, that as we read your word, we would see more about your son, and that you would help us to be changed by what we see. Would you uh, soften our hearts to your word? Um, Let us not be distracted, uh, but let us concentrate on what you have to say to us tonight. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would be at work. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's an addiction that is um, sweeping our nation um, at the moment. Um, It's called Netflix. Um, Luckily, I don't have it, um, but I did get close when I was watching um, the series Making a Murderer, which many of you might have seen recently. And essentially what happens um, during the series is it's a documentary um, looking at the true life of a man called Stephen Avery. Stephen Avery is accused of sexual assault. And he goes to prison. I think it's around 18 years he goes there. And while he's actually in prison, more and more information is coming about, which shows that in many ways it seems that the case was built on lies and was built on fabrication. And ultimately, he is um, taken out of prison and proved to be innocent. But as you're watching these episodes, um, as the episodes are going through and you're seeing more and more information, you become more and more shocked at the fact that this innocent man has had to pay the punishment for the guilty. One man goes free, but this man who is innocent actually pays the cost of their crimes. And in many ways, many of us, all of us, have a sense of what justice is. As Daf pointed out this morning to us, we expect life to be fair in many ways. When we see that justice isn't being served, it angers us or disappoints us. Maybe you saw last week as those events happened in Las Vegas and you yearned, you wanted there to be justice for the man that took all those people's innocent life. And even in the micro levels of life, we so often want justice. I um, struggled very much, I'll admit, yesterday um, while I was playing football with a referee who didn't seem to be um, serving justice. It's really, really hard when we feel that we have been wronged. Um, If you're a parent here, um, I'm sure my parents can attest to this, um, you will have often heard your children turn around to you and say, it's not fair. That's something I think was repeated a lot during my childhood. And even maybe on a slightly more humorous um, sense, have you ever been in a room, um, maybe uh, not to the ladies here, but the gentlemen, if somebody's passed wind and you've been accused of being that person? Um, I grew up with a certain man called Josh Greenhill, um, and that happened quite a lot to me. And you will fight if you're accused for justice. In either the micro levels, the humorous levels of life, but in the really serious levels of life, We will fight for justice because we have a very clear view as humans of what we think is right and what we think is wrong. And throughout the book of Mark, uh, what Mark's doing really is he's asking three specific questions. The, The first one that he's asking is, who is Jesus? And the second one that he's asking is, what has he come to do? And the third one that he's asking is, what should be our response? And the passage here that we're looking at tonight gives us a real, real problem. 
Because if what Mark says about Jesus is true, if he is the Son of God, then what we've just read here is the most unjust act that has ever happened in human history. The most unjust act that has ever happened in human history. Now, if you're not a Christian tonight, then you've obviously come here and you're happy enough to spend some of your time hearing about Jesus. But actually, the really important question for you to ask yourself is, who is he? Because if Jesus is the Son of God, if, as Mark says in the Gospel, he is the Son of God, then that demands a response. There must be a response to that. If he isn't, then actually in many ways there are probably a lot of different things you could spend your time doing other than hearing about a man who claimed to be someone he isn't. If you're a Christian here tonight, then actually if you're anything like me, you'll read passages like this, and we've heard them so many times throughout our childhood. And the danger is that third question that Mark is asking. What is our response to this? So often we read passages like this and we don't respond appropriately. They don't really mean us to anything. We become numb to them. And there's a real danger that we can just look at a passage like this and move on without being affected. Well, tonight what we're going to see through three specific points is we're going to see who Jesus is. We're going to see why he came. And ultimately we're going to see the response that we should um, take after that. So first of all, um, I'd like you to look down. We're going to be looking at chapter 14, and we're going to look at verses 53 to 65. And what we see in those verses is that Jesus has all authority, yet submits. Now, the context of this is that Jesus has been betrayed by Judas, one of his disciples, and all of the other disciples have also fled. So he's been left completely alone, and he's being accused. And what his accusers are really accusing him of is the fact that he is saying that he is the son of God. But first of all, I want you very, very quickly to look down at verse 54 with me. Because what we see here is um, something that Mark uses throughout his gospel, and it's what he calls, or what commentators have called, a Mark and sandwich. Now, that isn't um, a piece of food. It is a type of way that he's uh, telling a story. What he does here is he introduces Peter to us here. But he isn't going to, therefore, go and explain what happens to Peter. He is going to put a story in the middle and come back to Peter later. So we will come back to that. But what is important is the filling of this sandwich. So keep that in mind as we look through this. This is the filling of the start of what we see about Peter, and we are going to return to look at Peter again. Now, as we see Jesus is stood before the Sanhedrin, and we find the most biased and perverted court that has ever been seen in human history. In many ways, it's actually embarrassing. Since Mark 3, um, verse 6, these men have wanted to kill Jesus, and they've had all that time, and yet they get to this point where they are looking to accuse him, and they can't even come up with a consistent story. People come up to give testimonies, and they're not the same. And the reason for that is because Jesus is innocent. Think of what we've seen throughout Mark of what Jesus has done. He's fed the hungry. He's healed the sick. He's brought people back to life. And yet here is this man who's done all of those things being accused and people wanting him killed. And his enemies are wanting to do this um, in a way that is um, completely under the cover of darkness. 
This trial is not just in any way. This shouldn't be happening. And yet we have Jesus on trial here, accused. But as Jesus has said, as we heard last week, if you look at verse 49, as Chris spoke to us last week, we saw Jesus say these words, but that the scripture must be fulfilled. You see, what's happening here is Jesus is specifically fulfilling scripture by what is happening. We actually read in Isaiah 53 verse 9, which is around about 700 years before Jesus had even been born, these words that pointed to his life. He had done no violence and no deceit was in his mouth. 700 years before he was even born, those words were spoken about him. Now, if you look at verse 60 with me, we see after Jesus has been accused by these men, the chief priest stands up. And in many ways, this is very, very significant because actually what's happening here is Jesus, though he's being accused by the high priest, he is the real, true high priest. The whole of the Old Testament, the whole of the priestly role in the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. The fact that there is a high priest is supposed to point us towards the role that Jesus would take. The high priest essentially here is supposed to, as their role, is supposed to represent the people to God. And that's exactly what Jesus has come to do. He is the true high priest. And yet what we see here is the true high priest, Jesus, submits to this corrupt human high priest. Even though he has all authority, he chooses not to show that authority by even actually saying anything at the time. Because we see in verse 61 that actually he remains silent as he's accused. In the face of all these lies that are being thrown around, all these accusations, he doesn't even say anything. Think about, as we've looked through Mark, all the authority that we've seen. We've seen him calm storms. We've seen him control nature through his word. We've seen him raise the dead through his word. He has all authority just by speaking. And yet at this point, when there are lies and accusations flying around, he remains silent. Again, in this point, he is revealing scripture. Isaiah 53 verse 7 reads this, And as a sheep before its shearer is silent... So he did not open his mouth. He denies the right even to defend himself in this court. Instead, he humbles himself. Imagine if you got home tonight and suddenly the police um, burst through your door and arrested you and accused you of something that socially is completely unacceptable. Imagine if they accused you of being a paedophile or a terrorist or a murderer. And one by one, they pulled in witnesses. And none of these witnesses' testimony align. None of them are consistent. But you find yourself on the dock accused of this horrendous, horrendous crime. You would use your words. You would be doing everything in your power with your speech to try and show that you're innocent. And yet what we have here is the Son of God, who is completely innocent, remains silent in the face of these accusations. Silence is often seen as a demission of guilt or of weakness. But what we see here is that Jesus' view of authority doesn't fit our picture of authority at all. We actually do, though, get to see a small glimpse of his authority 
when he is asked by the high priest about who he is. And again, he submits to the high priest by giving him an answer. You'll look down at verse 62 and you'll see Jesus' answer. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus here reveals his identity despite the fact throughout most of Mark, in many senses, he's really concealed it. And the reason that he is revealing it now, the reason that he is revealing it to all of his accusers is because he knows now that it is his time to submit to what he's come to do. He submits here, and actually his admission of who he is is ultimately what condemns him. His enemies accuse him of blasphemy, as we read, and we leave the scene as he is horrifically beaten and spat upon. The great high priest, who the whole of the Old Testament has pointed to, is now ridiculed. And as he's being ridiculed, the guards actually are laughing at him, asking him to prophesy, who hit you? Actually, what the guards are specifically doing here is they are actually fulfilling prophecy themselves. Through them actually hitting him and spitting him, they are fulfilling the words of Isaiah 50, verse 6. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and from spitting. So we find through these verses Jesus revealing himself to be the Son of God, revealing himself through the prophecies through the whole of the Old Testament that he is the one who is God's Son that has come to earth. He has all authority, and yet we find him submitting, submitting himself to this corrupt trial, He lets himself, as Daph said a couple of weeks ago, he lets himself be handled by sinners, handled by people that he had made, and at any moment he could have escaped. At any moment he could have brought 12 legions of angels to take him from that point, but he stands there and he takes a scorn and the ridicule of man. And all while this is happening, there is another heartbreaking scene which has taken place outside. And the second thing we see from this passage is in verse four, is chapter 14, verse 66 to 72. We see that Jesus is faithful, yet he is denied. Now, I mentioned earlier that Mark uses a Mark and sandwich here. So we'd started, if you look back, um, with the introduction of Peter in verse 54. And then after that, we actually leave that scene and go to Jesus in the courtroom. But Mark later returns to speak to Peter. And we see in these verses this heartbreaking account in many ways of the fact that Peter denies Jesus. There's a really, really um, good book by a man called Ed Welch, which I would really recommend if you can get your hands on it reading, called, Kish has read it, um, called When People Are Big and God Is Small. And he writes this about Peter's fall. How could he have denied the Lord? He had seen the miracles. He was given the spirit who revealed to him that Jesus was the Christ. He was the rock. He witnessed the transfiguration. He loved Jesus. Denial was unthinkable. But he too was like us, a fellow sinner. He too could exalt people so that they seemed bigger than Jesus himself. And who seemed bigger than Jesus himself in this account? A servant girl. Women were looked down upon in 
this culture wrongly, but they were looked down upon, let alone uh, girls, let alone servant girls. And yet Peter, who had, so, um, had been so bold previously, who in the Garden of Gethsemane had taken his sword when there were men with clubs and weapons and had struck the servant of the high priest. He'd been so bold then, yet now he is denying that he even knows Jesus. And the reason that Mark uses this Mark and sandwich here is because he wants to contrast what we see. He wants to show these two scenes intertwined because actually what that shows us is just how different Peter and Jesus are. Peter stands outside a free man in verse 66 as Jesus stands in the courtroom being accused. Jesus is actually completely innocent as we know, yet Peter in many ways has just mutilated the servant of the high priest. If anybody should be stood in there being accused, it's him. Jesus stands within this court and he accepts his identity, but Peter denies his identity. Jesus is mocked, is embarrassed, is humiliated. Peter does everything he can not to be humiliated, even in front of a servant girl. Jesus later is beaten and is spat upon, and Peter instead is standing by a fire, warming himself. We see in these verses the complete and utter gulf between Jesus and Peter. The roles in many ways should have been reversed, but Jesus is faithfully taking this place that he can go to the cross and take the punishment for Peter's sin. The mark and sandwich that we see here specifically shines a light on how faithful Jesus is at this point, despite the fact that Peter is unfaithful. It contrasts the fact that Jesus is faithful with the fact that his people so often are not. And we see a wonderful window as we move to this last scene in what Jesus has come to do in verses 1 to 15 of chapter 15. As we look at these verses, it's actually interesting, the way that Mark's written this, um, it's very, very similar to what we see before when Jesus is in front of the Sanhedrin. There's a lot of parallels between what's going on here. We find Jesus pulled in here and accused in front of Pilate. And again, what we find is he submits to an earthly authority. The Son of God, the man who made the entire world, is submitting to earthly authority. And actually, we're given a clue, and actually, I think, in many ways, a challenge here by how we should respond. If you look at verse 5, you'll see Pilate's response by the fact Jesus makes no reply. Pilate was amazed. And yet so often I know that I read these verses and I'm not amazed as I should be. But as we turn to verse 6, we see a glorious representation of what Jesus has come to do. Let me read verse 6 for you. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. And now look down at verse 11. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to get Pilate to release Barabbas instead. Barabbas is completely and utterly guilty. A murderer, a man deserving punishment. And yet instead, it's Jesus who is sentenced to be crucified. 
And what this does is this pulls the whole of this passage and actually the whole of Mark together in a beautiful, beautiful way. Judas portrays in cold blood. The the priests twist the truth to sentence an innocent man. The guards beat Jesus without mercy. Peter denies him. Pilate sentences an innocent man to death because he's afraid of the people. And Barabbas is a murderer. All these characters in this one scene, and yet the one that is sentenced to death is the sinless one. And it's easy for us, isn't it, to look at this passage and to judge the different individuals in it. To look at Peter and think, how on earth could you deny Jesus? To look at Judas and think, how on earth could you betray Jesus? To look at Pilate and see his fear of man and think, what a coward. But the reality is that all of us have denied Jesus too. There's a great song by King's Kaleidoscope called, What Have We Done? And these are some of the words that are said in that song. Judas sold you for 30. I'd have done it for less. Peter denied you three times. I have denied you more. Doesn't that describe us so well? Jesus is going to go to the cross now to take on the punishment that his people deserve because we're all guilty of denying him as king of our lives. And at the end of this passage, what we have is we have the innocent son of God struck with a whip, cracking against his back, a whip that would have had pieces of metal and pieces of bones against the ends of it. So as they cracked the whip and it hit his back, it would have torn into his flesh, torn into the man who had never sinned, ripped out the flesh from his back, revealing bone, leaving his back completely mutilated. And he stood there and he took it for us. At any moment, with a click of his fingers, he could have stopped the suffering that he was going through. He could have punished those who were punishing him. He could have completely escaped what has happened. He could have healed himself. And yet he takes on that barbaric punishment for us, knowing that that is just the start of what is going to happen to him. There's a great scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which really points to what's going on here. Kush again has seen it. I can always rely on you, Kush, to see these films and these books. <laughs> what happens in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that book by C.S. Lewis, is the lion Aslan is a representation of Christ. And the boy Edmund, as many of you will know, has sinned. He's done wrong. There is a rightful punishment that he deserves. And yet Aslan goes to take the punishment for Edmund. And it's a great scene as Aslan walks towards taking this punishment. His enemies are delighted. They realize finally it's happened. They have the great king and he's in their midst. They mock him. They call him uh, a small cat. They push him to the ground. They beat him. They pluck his mane. They tie him up. They put him onto the stone table. And there... He is killed to take the punishment for Edmund's sin. At any moment, Aslan could escape. At any moment, Aslan could kill each one of his enemies, and yet he takes the punishment for Edmund's sin. And what Lewis is doing there is giving us a mirror to what Christ did for us. The king lays down his life for his people. 
He denies his right that he has as the perfect son of God with all authority to take himself out of that situation. And instead, he allows himself to be beaten, accused, and ultimately taken to the cross. What are the implications of this passage that we're reading? Well, in the Sanhedrin, you will see in um, chapter 14, verse 60, and as Jesus faces Pilate in 15, verse 2, they both ask the same question, essentially. And that question is, who is Jesus? And what we see from this passage is that he is the Son of God. He fulfills all of the scripture in the Old Testament. He's the one with all authority yet submits. He's the one who's faithful yet is denied. He's the one who's innocent, but he takes the guilty sentence. That second question that I said Mark was asking was, what has he come for? And again, we see that in this passage. He's come to lay down his life, to be the suffering servant. That's the reason he's allowing all of this to happen when at any moment he could stop it. All that is happening here is taking him closer to the cross. And we saw the anguish last week that he faced before he went to the cross. As Chris said, it wasn't just the physical punishment that he was going to take. But it was knowing that he was going to take the cup that we deserved, the punishment for our sin. So we've seen who Jesus is through this passage. We've seen what he's come for. That third question that Mark asks through his gospel is, well, what should be our response to this? And actually in the Sanhedrin, in chapter 14, verse 64, and in chapter 15, verse 12, Pilate is also asking, what should be done with this man? And that is because we should be as well. If you're a Christian here tonight, then whether you did it last night, whether you did it uh, 50 years ago, you have accepted that Jesus is the Son of God. You've accepted that he came to pay the price, pay the punishment that we deserved for our sin. You'd have heard the gospel so many times, but yet so often, if you're anything like me, we can grow numb to it. But my friends, we never, ever move away from the gospel. But we find ourselves so often like Peter in that we deny Jesus. We don't stand for him. We don't see him as our king. We don't accept his authority in our lives. I wonder where are you most likely to be tempted to deny Jesus in your life? Is it in the workplace when people are mocking you for believing um, that Jesus is the son of God? Is it by the school gates where you have the temptation to deny that you believe that Jesus' life and Jesus' words speak into the lives of the mums around you? Is it in the university lecturer where your friends are saying that science definitely proves that there was a big bang and that there was never a God who created this universe? Maybe tomorrow you'll face that question of what you did at the weekend. And at that specific point, you are faced up to the challenge of, do you deny that you went to church, that you went to worship Jesus? Or do you tell those people and potentially take ridicule from them? 
as we saw earlier, as we saw earlier today, Duff said, it's going to become so much harder in this country to become or to be a Christian. We're going to face accusations of um, not being tolerant to others. We might not be able to go into schools and tell the gospel. We are so lucky to even meet in this country and have the Bible in our own language. The pressure is going to be growing more and more for us to deny Jesus. It's something that if you're a Christian here, you are going to face and it is going to grow. What this passage should do is it should direct our eyes back to the gospel. Because as I said, we never move past the gospel. It should direct our eyes to Jesus, to who he is, to what he came for, and to ask the question of how we should respond. What it should do is it should make us resolved to live a life for him, not to deny him like Peter did, to actually want to live for the audience of one, to live for him rather than fearing man. And we don't do that because it justifies us, but we do that as a response to what Jesus has done for us, as a joyful response because he's done all the work on the cross. So we joyfully go into the workplace. We joyfully go to our non-Christian friends and we stand for Christ because he first stood for us. If you'd not call yourself a Christian here tonight, then the three questions that Mark has asked through the gospel are again key. Because either Jesus is the son of God and he came to die on the cross to pay for the punishment that sinners deserved or he was utterly deluded. And really, in many senses, there is no sitting on the fence here. You will either respond in one way or you will respond in the other. He can't just be a good teacher. As C.S. Lewis famously said, he's not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. He either will be the son of God or he will be a madman. Somebody utterly, utterly deluded. He will either have complete and utter relevance to your life or he'll have no relevance at all. If he is the son of God, then there is a reason why us humans crave justice. It's because there is something wrong with this world. And that's what the Bible calls sin. But there is a solution. Jesus came, he lived his life as a son of God, and he died so that if we accept that he is the only way to be right with God, then we have a promise of eternity with him. But if that is the case, if he is the perfect son of God and he went to the cross, then there must be a response. It would be a grave, grave thing to not respond to somebody doing that. To not respond to an innocent man laying his life down so that you would be saved. Jesus died so that people could be right with him. And that being true demands a response. And you can do that right here tonight. You can pray to God. You can say sorry for your sin and your rejection of Jesus. And you can say that you are accepting that Jesus' death and resurrection is the only way you can be right with God. And you can know that despite a world of injustice, one day you can be with God. And one day you can enjoy perfection with him in heaven. I'm going to leave a couple of moments now for us to ask ourselves those three questions. Ask ourselves the question of who is Jesus? What has he come for and how should I respond? And in that minute or so of silence, ask yourself those three questions.
If you are a Christian here tonight, ask yourself that question of how should you respond to this passage? And if you're not a Christian here tonight, then the real question is, who is Jesus? Because if he is the Son of God, then there must be a response even tonight. But if he isn't, then he was a deluded man. But what we've seen from this passage is he clearly, clearly was prophesied in the Old Testament. He clearly went to the cross and died for sinners and is offering up us a hope that we can be made right with him. Let's just bow our heads and take some time to think of those three questions and then I'll pray. Who is Jesus? What has he come for? And how should we respond? Heavenly Father, thank you that through this passage you show Jesus submitting to sinners that he might die on the cross. We see clearly from this passage that he is the Son of God. We see clearly that he has come to go to the cross and to die. And Lord, that leaves us with a response. And Lord, we know that we will, if we are Christians here tonight, We will face even tomorrow, um, even as we go from here, the temptation to deny Jesus as king of our lives, to not live as if what he did affects our everyday lives. Lord, would you change our hearts? Would you point us back to the gospel? And would you soften our hearts? Lord, if we need to repent, would you bring tears of repentance like we see from Peter? Would you lead us wanting to go and speak of you to the world and to live a life with you as king of our lives. And Lord, for those that aren't Christians here tonight, Lord, I pray that you would have been working in their hearts. Lord, it would be a grave thing for any person to reject your son after him going to the cross and taking on the punishment for people's sin. So I pray that even tonight here, there are people who are praying to you and are asking that they might have you as their saviour. We pray that people would be praying that the only way that they could be saved is through Jesus and we pray that they'd be praying that they'd accept that. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it speaks to us. If there's anything tonight that I've said that is unhelpful, please take that away and leave us just with your word because that is what is powerful. That is how the Holy Spirit works. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would be working through the word tonight, that we would ultimately be changed and that we'd go out into the world and live a life that is giving glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And we are going to respond in part um, by singing. Um, Who, O Lord? And the words of this song in many ways, um, as they're going to come up, say, Who, O Lord, could save themselves?
because there is no way that we could have saved ourselves. No way that we could have paid the punishment for our sin. Yet, Jesus went to the cross and died for us as a suffering servant that we might be guaranteed a future with him.